When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to season three of Origin Story. We are very glad to be back. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today and hopefully pick apart some of the misunderstandings that cluster around them. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. And I am Ian Dunt. I am the author of How Westminster Works and Why It Doesn't and I am a columnist for the Iron newspaper. And we're starting the season with a person who has become an idea. So Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, born 1874, died in 1965. A life so long and so eventful that it is going to be our first two-part episode. Now, Ian, this will probably be the shortest episode of the season because there's really just one question. The one John McDonald was asked in 2019. Churchill, hero or villain? <laughs> <laughs> now, that's the kind of level of moral complexity we like to deal with on this programme. That makes sense. And, and where did you come up? What was your answer? Well... I don't want to spoil it. I would say a bit of both. <laughs> no, no. What, what struck me as very weird is this binary opinion. Some of the books I read, one was called Oblivion or Glory. One was called Military Genius or Menace. <laughs> Apparently at the cabinet war rooms, you can vote for radical or reactionary. Oh, wow. And the answer always being both or neither, because he was this sort of giant mess of, of contradictions. He's classic sort of on the one hand, on the other politician. If I give mm -hmm. you one set of information would make him sound very progressive. Another list would make him sound like a brutal imperialist reactionary. And the point is that, it, that it's all of those. I mean, one fact which, which I think blew my mind was that he was born the year that Middlemarch was published and he died the year the Beatles released Rubber Soul. Yeah, that's fucking crazy, right? I can, I can do you better for this. Hold on. He rode in a cavalry charge in 1898. He lived to control atomic bombs. Like that in itself is like an insane yeah. sweep of life, right? Like, I mean, he became an MP when Queen Victoria was on the throne. And this morning I was looking at a photo of a young King Charles speaking to him, right? So you just like, it, it's an like, it, he stretches right into what is actual history, but touches the present. And middle-aged listeners will be delighted to be reminded that he didn't become prime minister until he was 65. <laughs> and, and he's lying. still hope. Lionized mainly for what he did and said during his first year in charge, mm. which I, it did make me wonder, like, how would we remember him if he had died in 1939, got knocked over by a car? He, he was actually knocked over by a car in New York a few years earlier. So. He was, yeah. He had, like, a, an extraordinary collection of near-death experiences, yeah, yeah, by yeah. the way. Like, he was a lucky guy. He'd just be a bog-standard footnote sort of mercurial figure. I mean, well, it's just like, you know, how many politicians that were not prime minister from the period before you were born right. can you name? You know, it's actually quite hard just on that basis. If you don't make it to PM, history tends to forget you. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's a few, you know, that few, yeah. challenged or whatever. And I don't think he would have sort of been included. He would have been considered quite eccentric. And as you say, both reactionary and progressive at the same time. But certainly, I mean, he, I don't think he would be a name that we know now. 
So I went into foils to get up some books for research. Mm. Did they have an entire room for him? Well, there's one giant shelf full of books about Churchill and another giant shelf <laughs> with books by Churchill, you know, because he was this is an extraordinary writer. We both read a lot, given that he's quite exhausting. What did you make of him? I was very tired by him. I was very, like, well, you and I had a conversation after the reading was done and I was just, I felt liberated to no longer have him in my life <laughs> and speaking inside of my head. And I remember this because I remember feeling the same way when I tried to read his books on the war and I just couldn't make it past sort of 20 pages. It was just like that the voice was mm. in my head and I mm. found it very oppressive. And reading about him, I find him quite a tiring personality. It's like the energy of him comes across in a way that's actually quite unpleasant. Did you have the same? Do you like him more now or less than when you went in? That's a better question. I think, I think I liked him more through the fascination of mm -hmm. history, just this sort of giant, giant character. You know, one of these people who, who is there at all these crucial points of history that sometimes I think of as quite separate. And it's like, oh, there's Churchill, like H.G. Mm -hmm. Wells. You know, just these enormous kind of flawed, irritating, exhausting, brilliant characters. You know, and it, it, it's sort of my my job in really is past moral judgment. I suppose what we're trying to to look at is these um, counter myths, like myths and counter myths. Like he mythologized himself. Yeah. You know, in his books about Second World War, in his autobiography, all of that. Now, on the one hand, he beat Shakespeare to the top of a BBC poll of Great Britons in 2002. And more than any PM, he's synonymous with the country. So the arguments about him are qualitatively different to arguments about any other politician about, you know, Attlee or Lloyd George or Thatcher. And so he becomes quite sort of an abstract figure in some ways. And I think also there's a left-wing counter-myth, which is also, you know, not quite accurate. And as we go along, we're going to pick out, I've numbered them like a chart, pick out the main charges of the prosecution from Tony Pandey to the Bengal famine and so on. Mm -hmm. So we can sort of, as we move through chronologically, we can zero in on these particular points and go like people who hate Churchill this is why. And I want to give you an example here of the case against the 2000 May Day protest, anti-capitalist protest. Yeah. You might remember that. Yeah. Churchill statue in London was given a grass mohawk and a mm -hmm. blood red mouth. I remember covering this at Select. I think we ran the picture of the grass mohawk because it's just a great image. Anyway, the protester who did it explained, I'm not going to pick apart or question that. I'm just going to say what he said. So Churchill was an exponent of capitalism and of imperialism and anti-Semitism. A Tory reactionary vehemently opposed the emancipation of women and to independence in India. And often a rational, sometimes vainglorious leader whose impetuosity, egotism and bigotry on occasion cost many lives unnecessarily and caused much suffering that was needless and justified. There's a lot in there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's extremely eloquent. And it's about 60% true. It's about 60% true. Mm. There are some things I think are not true, but it's, but it's about 60% true. I sort of think, obviously, this podcast is not really ultimately about a bloke that lived over those years. Right. It is about like how we see ourselves now. And him as a figure, but also in a really precise physical way, that specific statue in Parliament Square functions as sort of ground zero in Britain's war over its own history and over its own personality. And on the one hand, you have people that say, look, we have an unblemished historical record. You'll see them go out to write every time. It's like, well, Britain ended the slave trade and never had anything to do with it. And anyway, the Africans had their own, you know, that kind of attitude. Yeah. Well, the other, this is Britain has basically never done a decent thing. It is just this colonial sort of bloodthirsty horror. That's all that its history is. This is not an easy podcast in a way, because it's not one of those where you you can, if you, if you know the facts about his life, it is simply 
impossible to fall down on one side or the other of he was good or bad. Okay, it's more complicated than Ayn Rand. Much, yeah. I mean, or McCarthy. (laughs) I think it's actually quite hard to find someone who is so balanced in their qualities and their dreadfulness as as this guy. Like, it's quite hard to maintain a view on him. And then there is the extent of what he did. Where you sort of end up for me is is this idea of like, you know, he is a racist imperialist warmonger. Don't give it away. (laughs) Yeah, spoilers, right? He is also the most important anti-fascist in the history of humankind. And to be able to maintain those two thoughts in your head, I think it's like, it's a profoundly difficult yeah. and frustrating and emotionally irritating thing to do. But, but then that's what history is like, right? And, and this is where, of course, you know, the history books generally are much more useful than the kind of head-to-head format that you get in the media, like that question that that John McDonnell got asked. You know, Mm -hmm. it's sort of ridiculous. What you don't want is somebody, you don't want like Andrew Roberts, whatever, going as in Churchill, wonderful. (laughs) And then, you know, somebody from Navarro or whatever going, (laughs) no, no, he's awful. It's like that. It it, it doesn't add to understanding because he does make it a culture war. He does become a culture war battleground. Whereas what's sort of interesting to me is all the the sort of complexities. And even, I've got to say, I read uh, Boris Johnson's 2014 book, The Churchill Factor. You did. And even in that, I mean, Bojo is very pro-Winston, but even in that, he's listing a lot of, you know, really bad, stupid things that he did. So actually the books, it's quite hard. And even the more revisionist book that I read, which I think you read as well, Jeffrey Wheatcroft, also kind of like points out a lot of good things. So in the world of history, actually, it is not a big, it's not hero or villain. Mm -hmm. Nobody's that dumb. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that's the debate we have. Now, obviously, there is no OED definition of a person, <laughs> but there is one of Churchillian. <laughs> what I love is that after three series of this, you actually look weirdly sad when you say there's no OED. I love the OED. <laughs> but they do define Churchillian, which I think is the safest of all definitions of relating to or characteristic of Sir Winston Churchill. <laughs> well, thank you for using up our vital running time. Yeah, to I this. think probably they, they, <laughs> they just went for lunch early after coming up with that one. <laughs> First citation, the Times in 1912, goes, that preface is, I don't know what preface they mean, I suppose the concentrated essence of Churchillian statesmanship. Mm. When Then it meant things to do directly with Winston Churchill. First posthumous citation that they have, surely not the first posthumous use, because it's 1976 from the Telegraph. What? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is with the OED, it doesn't really break up this kind of citation versus that kind of citation. So it gives you a, mm. a selection. So actually, I don't know the first time somebody used Churchillian to describe someone who wasn't Churchill. Mm. Anyway, it says, the Defence Council drew in Churchillian tones on the Bible, the classics, Shakespeare, even Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. So it essentially means a rhetorical style. Whereas I think when, when uh, Blair and Bush during the Iraq War were trying to be Churchillian, they were thinking of something else. And I wonder whether Churchillian... Yes, it means the language, but it, it sort of means 1940. This is my obsession. That when we say Churchill, yes. we, it's 1940. It means Munich. Stubbornness in oh, the right. face okay, of sure. Yeah, it, yeah. When you say he's a Churchillian leader, for now we mean willing to stand up against Munich tyranny. Munich through to the battle you know, of Britain. Yeah. No matter how unpopular, exactly. Yeah. So I think we're, we're ready to start. I just want to offer two quick and I think surprising testimonies. Oh, great. Before we start. One is from... Fidel Castro in 1964. I was not expecting you to say that. Yep. He said to an audience, if Churchill hadn't done what he did to defeat the Nazis, you wouldn't be here. None of us would be here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Another great but divisive 
political figure, Jerry Halliwell. <laughs> so the Churchill was the original Spice Girl because he won, he won a war for us and he got fired. <laughs> Which is just amazing. But in some ways, very similar to the career of the Spice Girls who famously won a war for us. So why don't you why don't you kick us off on on his early life? Okay, so there is a lot of life. Mm. We're going to try and be uh, we're going to try and be brisk here. A rival podcast has done three episodes on Young Churchill alone, <laughs> which is totally <laughs> wow. legitimate. Oh, wow, my um, God. But we do not have that sort of time. So he was born in Blenheim Palace, Oxfordshire in 1874. This was a palace that had been gifted to his grandfather when he was made Lord Marlborough. He was a great military hero, Churchill ended up writing a massive book about Marlborough. Mm. His parents uh, married. He actually sued a writer for describing his parents' marriage as the first snob dollar marriage. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could see. It doesn't seem libelous. It seems rude. It doesn't seem libelous. His mother, Jenny, was the daughter of an American businessman who owned the New York Times. One biographer called Jenny a beautiful, shallow, diamond-studded panther of a woman. Which is like... There's obviously some attraction. <laughs> she must have been very striking, right? Like even there's a there's a line from him later on. This is the one she got out. He never got. He said about her, she never got over not being the most beautiful person in the room. Right after middle age, so clearly there was this thing that she must have been extremely striking and you know, the centre of sort of social gravity. So the money really came from Jenny's side of the family, and the aristocratic prestige came from hmm. his father's side. His father was Lord Randolph Churchill. A Tory MP, who Roy Jenkins says in his book Churchill, which is, I suppose, my main source, was without rival in making so much noise and achieving so little. <laughs> he was a he was a, he was a very gifted populist. Uh, he was shameless, cynical, flamboyant, immature, and obnoxious. Mm. And as someone else has pointed out, that Boris Johnson keeps thinking that he's Winston Churchill, but he's probably Randall. <laughs> oh, oh my God, that is devastating. Yes. Oh, that's so. I should brilliant. credit. I should credit. Uh, I think Dominic Sandbrook said that. Oh, uh, that's just fantastic. That. So Randolph dies at the age of forty-five, probably from syphilis, which he definitely had. And this sort of explains Churchill's obsession with money and his conviction that he had to move fast because he expected to die at around 45. Hmm. Now, paging Dr. Freud, his first book was a hagiography of his father, a father who was not respected at all in mm. politics by anyone who had served with him. He had a very short, tumultuous cabinet career. You know, he was a very big, charismatic figure, but didn't really achieve anything. And yet, before he writes about his grandfather, who really had achieved something, Churchill's writing one about his father to sort of set the record straight. Even though he didn't seem to particularly get on with his parents. Well, they he are. really defensive. They're just dreadful to him. Dreadful. Yeah. I was like really up, upset. Like the letters he writes as a child, and he obviously, because of his class, gets sent off to boarding school. And one of the letters is, please, my mummy, darling, be kind to your loving son. Let me at least think that you love me, mummy. I despair I am so wretched. I don't know what to do. To which she replied, I have read one page of your letter and I send it back to you as its style does not please me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're brutal. His father, when he gets into sort of military academy in Sandhurst, writes to him saying, I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you may say about your own accomplishments and exploits. If you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless, unprofitable life that you have had during your school days and later months, you will become a mere social wastrel. You will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy and futile existence. This is the tone that his father has with him constantly. So at Harrow, pretty kind of shabby student, 
rather than go to university, he joined the cavalry because he's very into empire as a sort of, as just an ad, like an adventure playground primarily, <laughs> just like a, <laughs> enormous fun. And then he became an, an autodidact, uh, particularly interested in, in the histories of Gibbon and Macaulay, of kind of the rise oh. and fall of great men and great empires. Right, right. You know, the man of destiny. Yeah. But it also just seems as an example of, he's like writing himself into history. Mm. And he's going, books are written about great men, and I'm going to write books about a great men, i.e. me. Yes. And I think, and he didn't actually have many friends throughout his life. And I think kind of words were his best friends. And we'd obviously see, you know, how useful that was during World War II. Yeah, yeah. But right from the start, he has this idea as a session with kind of empire, but also like the, st the story of empire, not the finances, mm -hmm. you know, or the, the, the kind of details, but the great kind of mythic swagger of it. Yeah. So he, he goes off as a journalist to see the, the war in Cuba, visits America for the first time, which obviously had a family connection to, um, then serves in India and Sudan under Lord Kitchener, then wants to get into politics, basically considers himself a liberal in all but name, but his dad's main political obsession was opposing home rule in Ireland, mm -hmm. and the liberals supported home rule. And so I feel almost a lot of filial loyalty, like that's a a red line for him. So he stands for the Tories in the Oldham by-election in 1819, loses. And then because he always has to be up to something, goes to South Africa as a journalist just before the Second Boer War, where, and I mean, this you, you could do an episode on this whole escapade. Yeah. Anyway, it's proper boy's own adventure show. Yeah, he gets captured as a prisoner of war and escapes, which makes him a real celebrity back home. Then, to his credit, rejoins the army mm. to fight in the Boer War. Always looking where the action is, whether as a journalist or a soldier. And he was so famous because of this escape. The first biography of Churchill came out in 1905 when he was 30. Fuck me. Yeah. You see, that's not... You see, I, I like the whole achieved his life's greatest ambition at 65 <laughs> bit. The, they're writing, they're writing yeah. biographies of you at the age of 30. I'm not so keen on overall. So this brings us to allegation number one. Mm. He was an imperialist and white supremacist. Yes. Uh, well, the answer is that that's yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he absolutely was. So, I mean, that you can see the traces of the imperialism even in the wars. I mean, you know, those wars you just talked about, stuff in Cuba and Sudan, he, would, he called them jolly little wars, right? They were quite jolly for him. So you take what was happening in Sudan. I mean, he was there with 21 lancers. Now, they had 52 machine guns, okay, versus opponents who were armed with spears. Right, so how many soldiers died that day? This is um, the Battle of Omdurman, which is north of Khartoum. 47 British soldiers fell against 10,000 Sudanese. And Churchill's response is to say, this is a quote, talk of fun, where will you beat this? Right, And that gives you an indication of, of where he's coming from. So most of his arguments for imperialism are this sort of paternalistic civilization project. Right, So he says, once we repudiate our responsibilities to foreigners and to minorities, once we feel ourselves unable to calmly and fearlessly discharge our duties to vast helpless populations, then our presence in those countries will be stripped of every moral sanction. So it's very much like, oh, look, we're not doing this for us. <laughs> you know. Well Considering that a lot of imperialists were essentially you know, sort of genocidal psychopaths, mm -hmm. you know, he is someone who, who kind of like he opposed after the Boer War, South African mistreatment of the Zulus. Yeah. Not mistreatment as in the racism, but, yeah, you yeah. know, the brutality, yeah. you know, opposed the abuse of Chinese laborers, whatever. So he, you know, he did have a sense that like imperialism, great, 
but let's not, not, for example, what you know the Belgians were doing in the Congo, which is not at all to defend him, but to say that he had a particular view of empire, which was as a grand narrative, rather, you know, with a kind of, and this is the best of Britain, rather than the kind of pure rapacity. But at the same time, he was like undeniably racist. This is a letter he wrote from the Battle of Omdurman. Mm -hmm. He goes, I have a keen Aboriginal desire to kill several of these odious dervishes. Yeah. Well, he particularly hates Muslims. So he accuses them of improvident habits. Slovenly systems of agriculture exist wherever the followers of the prophet rule or live. A degraded sensualism. He, I mean, Edward Said could have written that himself, yeah, yeah. basically. Like, degraded sensualism deprives this life of its grace or refinement, the next of its dignity and sanctity. There is no stronger retrograde force that exists in the world. It's grim. Let me continue with some of the examples, because we might as well just have the examples there. For right, to say. Okay. And, and you, we take the worst ones, really. Th and these are the worst things that he says. Okay. But they are. But, you know, throughout his life, it's there. You know, he's always saying this stuff. And I'm sure he wants to impress, you know, in a kind of punch magazine, jokey racism of the time. But also, I think that he does truly believe this stuff. Yes, we should let listeners know, presumably, you're about to say. I'm about to say racist more racist things. stuff. So, yeah. Um, so this is on, <laughs> on Gandhi. Which I, should we have a special sound on the podcast? for when we have to quote racism because it's happening Oof, quite a I know, lot. I know. So this is on Gandhi in 1931. It is alarming and nauseating to see Mr. Gandhi, a seditious middle temple lawyer, now posing as a fakir of a type well-known in the East, striding half-naked up the steps of the Visregal Palace to parley on equal terms with the representative of the King Emperor. Such a spectacle can only increase the unrest in India and the danger to which white people there are exposed. And it's also worth saying that I mean, one of the last things he ever suggested to his cabinet as prime minister in 1955 was that the Tories should run the next election on the slogan, keep England white. This is obviously the beginning of sort of immigration, right? So there's not a lot of change there. Andrew Roberts, who's written probably the, the sort of classic modern one volume biography and is a big, big defender of Churchill. And, and I quite like the book. It has a sort of mixed record on this, interestingly. See, in 2018, in that book, he says that his thinking was perfectly orthodox thinking at the time. Mm. But that was not his position in 1994. Back then, he would say that Churchill was actually, quote, more profoundly racist than most. And I think that earlier version of the assessment is correct, that he is going quite a bit further than most people were at the time. Let me add a final element to this, which is this phrase that comes up a lot and that becomes quite important, which is the English-speaking races. Mm. Now, that word race then sort of morphs over time into the English-speaking peoples, which sounds much safer, although still pretty pretty weird. And this is sold as quite sort of innocent. It's just about the special relationship. And blah, blah. I don't think it is that innocent. And I actually think the English-speaking races was probably the better way of looking at it because there's, there is, to him, quite clearly a hierarchy. And it's ultimately... <laughs> People that speak English mm, <laughs> at the mm. top, then white people, <clears throat> and then everyone else. You know, and, and it really is ultimately as simple as that. And as we shall see later, you know, racism, you know, has material effects on policy. Extremely. I think, it, again, there's yeah. a sort of weird thing where we talk about kind of, you know, um, the racist statements of figures of the past. Now, if you're a novelist, you know, if you're Roald Dahl saying something anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. very bad. But he, he never was in a position to, you know, institute anti-Semitic policies. Yes. Whereas, of course, as we'll see later on, racism has consequences. Absolutely. It's not just, oh, he, he said the wrong thing to this kind of aide who then reported it in a memoir. It's I think it has policy consequences and it has military consequences because I think lots of his blunders are a result of systematically 
underestimating enemies on the basis of their race. It's particularly the Turkish people and particularly Japanese people. We want to take this moment to shout out a huge thank you to some of our brilliant Patreon subscribers. Tom Pegg, Christopher Hind, Martin Ford Downs, thank you, Martin, Jan Nymia, Lynn Parker. We salute you. Thank you very much for supporting us. We literally couldn't do any of this without you. To find out more about subscribing to Origin Story, click on the link in the show notes. Okay, so back for South Africa, goes for Oldham again in the 1900 general election, wins this time, but mainly socialised with liberals. He had basically one close friend among the Tories. It was F.E. Smith, Lord Birkenhead. He was his best friend until he died in, I think, Mm. 1930. Anyway, annoys the local Conservative Association no end by opposing Tory policies uh, like protectionism because he was a big free trade guy. Mm -hmm. Here is what the socialist Beatrice Webb made of 28-year-old Winston in 1903 which I, I do think, i got to say, is a fairly Johnsonian description. <laughs> Restless, almost intolerably so, without capacity for sustained and unexcited labour, egotistical, bumptious, shallow-minded and reactionary, but with a certain personal magnetism, great pluck and some originality, not of mm. intellect, but of character. Mm. Which I'd imagine is exactly correct. So very tense relationship with the Tories. Breaks with them over the Aliens Bill, which was directed at Jewish immigrants. And he said, it violates the old tolerant and generous practice of free entry and asylum to which this country has so long adhered and from which it has so greatly gained. Which is not very Swellabravement of him. (laughs) So this is sort of a side, I'm going to do this as like a side allegation. Um, (laughs) the, 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 The protester in 2000 said capitalism, yes, imperialism, yes, anti-Semitism, which I find very weird. Just jumping ahead for a bit, just after the Russian Revolution, he briefly praised the protocols of the elders of Zion, which is, ah. <laughs> uh, then kind of retracted that, but it attacked what, what he calls of international Jews, such as Marx and Trotsky. So he's sort of, yes, maybe anti-Semitic, but against socialists, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like mainly he was anti-socialist. But he was from 1904 a, a Zionist, pretty staunch opponent of anti-Semitism, the, the Aliens Bill, for example. And there's a story here from, from 1932. He's on holiday in Munich just before Hitler takes power. And a, and a go-between, some rather creepy little Nazi, offered to arrange a meeting with Hitler. Mm. And Churchill was sort of up for this, of curiosity. I think we should all be very upset that that didn't take place. And film scriptwriters oh, until the end oh, of time God. must curse the fact. Churchill slash Hitler. <laughs> And anyway, he just goes, yeah, okay, cool, sure, I'll do it. But I, I, I really want to ask, like, what is his problem with Jews? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the meeting the meeting never takes place. Yeah, maybe for sort of other reasons. I think Hitler thought that Churchill at that point was like a busted flush and not worth spending time on. Hmm. But it certainly could not have helped. And the fact is that in 1932, he's already going, this guy's anti-Semitism is like a massive and glaring, yeah. glaring issue. Should we also mention the fact that it is uncommon to not be anti-Semitic right. for his class in this country at that time? Like, very uncommon to stand up against that. I mean, he's actually essentially like philo-Semitic. And I think the real allegation, what's weird, I think, from a left-wing protester was to point anti-Semitism, whereas you could completely legitimately say... Yeah. Where he was just anti-Palestinian. You've got so much other material. You know, uh, uh, yeah, he says, on asked about Palestinian Arabs and whether they should have to make way, essentially, for Israel. So I do not admit that right. 
their right to, to remain there. I do not admit, for instance, that a great wrong has been done to the Red Indians of America or the black people of Australia. Sorry, this is racist klaxon. <laughs> I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade race, or at any rate a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. So essentially the allegation should be the opposite, is that he was so sort of philo-Semitic, but for kind of racist reasons. Exactly. You know, and that's that's what Zionist for imperialist reasons. Yes, exactly. So, but you really can't. I don't really think, like I said, apart from that kind of bit where the anti-socialism kind of spills spills into that, it's like you can't really say anti-Semitism was one of his major flaws. Given, and we'll come to another example in a in a little bit. Given the context, I mean, he literally quits the Tories over this piece of anti-Semitic yeah. legislation. And Attlee would say years later, you know, in sort of mid-30s, but well before the war, that Churchill would have tears running down his face when talking about what was happening to the Jews in Germany when he was speaking to him. You know, th- this is someone whose record on this stuff. You know, when you, when you take out those moments, he genuinely cared very deeply and passionately about Jewish people and was appalled by what was happening. Well, this cues up uh, where he defects the liberals, and this period is the closest that you can get to, to woke Winston. <laughs> Do you really, how do you feel about the fact you just said that? Well, it was, yeah. it's, no, just a, it's just, just like, a bit of fun. I didn't like, please don't look me in the eyes if you say it again. Jenkins, Roy Jenkins says that until 1920, Churchill was on the center left of British politics. Hmm. He says at this point, brilliant stuff, I hate the Tory party, their men, their words and their methods. <laughs> he also says, I said a lot of stupid things when I was in the Conservative Party <laughs> and I left it because I did not want to go on saying stupid things. <laughs> Which, you know, big fan of that. This is also the period where he marries Clementine, very famous from all the films. You know, really starts making, you know, some, some really good money as an author as well as a, as a journalist. And there's some amazing quotes about him from this period. One of the, Churchill is perhaps the most sort of spoken about figure. That there were these brilliant mm. witticisms mm. about him. Anyway, Lady Lytton said, the first time you meet Winston, you see all his faults, and the rest of your life you spend in discovering his virtues. Yeah, yeah, I read that. That was interesting, wasn't it? This is really, really good. He obviously makes a terrible first impression. Mm -hmm. Sir Francis Hopwood saw echoes of Randolph. He said he is most tiresome to deal with and will, I fear, give trouble, as his father did, in any position to which he may be called. The restless energy, uncontrollable desire for notoriety, and the lack of moral perception make him an anxiety indeed. (laughs) So what's weird here is what he did as a liberal versus his motives because the idea is the tories obviously hated him as a turncoat and it was like well he was only doing this to sort of get ahead and yet the things that he did and i it's a weird one in politics it's like well do you judge people by the things that they did or the reasons that they did them do they have to be pure of heart in order to have achieved good things so he hates socialism but he's in the Liberal Party, he's one of Lloyd George's radicals. As President Board of Trade, he establishes labor exchanges and trade boards to help the unemployed, protect workers' rights. He helps draft the country's first health and unemployment insurance bills. Also proposes abolition of the House of Lords, despite his father having been a lord. Then he becomes Home Secretary. Pretty moderate, does not believe in the efficacy of long prison sentences. Mm-hmm very ambivalent about the the death penalty, introduces things for the first time like prison libraries, reduced sentences for political prisoners versus actual crimes, and young offenders. Half the death sentences that crossed his desk, because the Home Secretary had to approve of... Mm -hmm. He commuted half of them, supported women's suffrage if there was a referendum, which meant the suffragettes saw him as an (laughs) enemy. But he was not overtly an enemy of suffrage, 
maybe not the staunchest ally. I think they kept on interrupting all of his sort of election meetings. I think you yeah. could see him just, just in the end thinking, who the hell are these people interrupting my speeches? And he turned against them. I think he was, insti- at the beginning, he was instinctively quite sympathetic, wasn't he? But, he- but it's weird because I've always said in my lifetime, I've always thought that the post of Home Secretary ruins people. Yes. You know? And I've made exemption for Roy Jenkins before I was born, but in my lifetime... Yeah. But that's how far you've got to go back. Right. You know. In my lifetime, it's like anyone who, who might have been quite reasonable in another role just becomes an absolute bastard in that yes. office. Labour, Tory, doesn't matter. If you're already a bastard, you become almost sort of supernaturally evil. So the fact that as Home Secretary, a pretty decent reformist record, and some of these reforms are, are still with us today, you know, mm. prison libraries or whatever. Another weird thing, he now supports Home Rule and a united Ireland. Says what well, Irishmen all over the world most desire is not hostility against this country, but the unity of their own. Mm. So this was his father's sacred cow. And again, you can just go, well, he's betrayed his beliefs or his father's legacy or whatever, but you know, by just going along with the Liberal Party line. Just to sort of jump ahead, the paradox of what he was like comes across in Ireland. He uses the paramilitary black and tans against Irish revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. But his relationship with the revolutionary leader, Michael Collins, is so strong that it helps end the War of Independence. And just before his death, Collins said, tell Winston we could never have done anything without him. Mm-hmm. So he's literally sending in these infamously brutal paramilitaries and yet also getting along with like mm-hmm. the, the, the main guy. Allegation number three. When John McDonnell was asked hero or villain, as I mentioned earlier, he said with brilliant political judgment, villain, Tony, <laughs> Tony Pandy. Don't fall for the question. It's an election year, man. <laughs> anyway, so this is Tony Pandu in Wales, where violence broke out between striking coal miners and the police in 1910. And Churchill was demonised by the labour movement for sending in soldiers. Actually, only one detachment made it. There were no clashes. Mm-hmm. There were no bullets. Just one miner died. That was killed by the police probably before they got there. In fact, papers like The Times slammed him as being far too soft. Yep. On the miners. Also, another strange fact, some of the miners were targeting Jewish-owned businesses, Yeah, which one author I saw described as basically a mini pogrom. That's exactly, yeah, yeah. Weirdly, he did authorise troops to fire on striking dockers in 1911, <laughs> but this just seems to be like much less famous than Tony Pandy. But this was the point, this is the beginning of the sort of animus between, you know, the, the, the lab, in the labour movement towards Churchill. Why do you think that in 2019, McDonnell is still bringing this up, this very contested, it's not a clear, I'd always thought when I first heard people talk about this, I thought it was like Bloody Sunday. Can I put my hands up on this one and just say, this is one of the things I went into being completely wrong about. I mean, I was confident on this, I was confident on another that we're about to come to, Hmm. and I was incorrect. It is nothing like what I thought it was. I, I, mean, I basically thought that they kind of slaughtered Welsh strikers. Right. And, to the point, and to the point of how often this comes up, I remember being at a party like less than a year ago where the subjects of Churchill came up and, and someone said, well, obviously I hate him because I'm Welsh. You know, it was like this, it's a really deeply ingrained historic thing. And when you read about it, you're like, what? Like this no, can't all I, be all there is. I read multiple accounts of this just to see if one writer had been too yeah, kind. Yeah, yeah. And it's like the facts do not change. Mm. So... I, I just find it very, very bizarre, maybe the power of kind of the mythologies of political movements, that this is just sort of in the the blood of the of the Labour Party, that this was Churchill's great sin. Because I think there's other things that you might, later on, that you might more reasonably be furious about. He's so clearly, because this happened in his own lifetime as well. 
Yeah, there must have been something about his personality that just allowed people to think the very, very worst of him all the time because they did reliably on both sides. Well, because he was seen as militaristic, even when you say earlier, like warmonger. Mm. It's like there's a lot of statements throughout his life where he's just like, war is war is horrific. You know, he yeah. says it in, I think, in 1909. He says it in 1932. He goes, you know, we cannot contemplate another war. And we'll come to this. There's also a lot of statements where he says, we kind of, I mean, not in so many words, but he says war is horrific and damn me, but I, I love it. <laughs> you know, he's right, very it. aware of his own conflicted. Yeah. So in 1911, talking of the war, he becomes first Lord of the Admiralty under Asquith, expands the Navy in anticipation of war with Germany. Wedded to the Navy, to mm. a fault, I would say. He's doing all right. The war, the war begins until his next big setback. I suppose we get allegation four, number four, but it's not that controversial. I don't think anybody just mm-hmm. goes, Gallipoli was great. <laughs> so his plan in 1915 was to break the deadlock on the Western Front because he was genuinely horrified by the kind of massacre of yep. troops in the trenches. And he thought this was atrocious. And deserves, I think, credit for how persistently mm. he criticised that. So, I mean, one of the things he said was, this is in the first Christmas of the war, the position of both armies is not likely to undergo any decisive change, although no doubt several hundred thousand men will be spent to satisfy the military mind on that point. Like, he was persistently like, this is not, you know, what are you doing? And I think there's a lot of chaos and disaster that happens as a result of Gallipoli, but the fundamental instinct, which was we have to find another way, <laughs> because right. just chewing barbed wire in the mud is not going to get us there, is, is a is a sound instinct. But what he has is this adventurer's instinct yes. of, of the, the daring, and with one bound he was free. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like if we just pull off this exciting raid. Uh, we will end the war. So his plan was to defeat Turkey, knock him out of the war with an attack on the Dardanelles. It is famously a total fiasco. 300,000 Allied casualties, including more than 50,000 dead. You know, huge sort of scar, I think, on the kind of the national memory of Australia and New Zealand. Well, Anzac Day even now yeah. is, you know, this is arguably part of the process by which Australia becomes much more distant from Britain. Yeah. There's an old Mel Gibson film of, you know, just Australian men being sent to their deaths by dismissive sort of, you know, posh English, you know, officers. Yeah. It's part of this, the national myth-making. Now, yeah. an inquiry later ab- absolved him of kind of the main responsibility for it because of course you know it's the generals and it's this that and the other but certainly this was his it was his big idea and it went very badly wrong he initiated it yeah lots of other people supported it but also they distanced themselves and he oh, didn't yeah. right until the end he, really, he kind of never did actually. no no he kind yeah. of he did sort of own his military errors mm. large well no Although the actually, question of whether he ever learned from them is another <laughs> no one. yeah no 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 but he was quite often yeah he, he didn't really back away from from that so anyway, the Tories who have hated him for a long time love this. <laughs> when Asquith has to form a wartime coalition government, the Tories have like one big condition, which is that Churchill is demoted. Mm. <laughs> which he, he, yeah, he resigns from the cabinet altogether. It is funny this. when you read this stuff, right? Reading all the way through his life, right up until 1940, yeah. every time a Conservative MP or a Conservative newspaper is mentioned, it's them just attacking Churchill. Oh, yeah. they, they despise Absolutely. him on the which right. Absolutely, because he's being despised by... Labour, mm. also despised by um, the Tory right. I suppose in the old BBC argument would be just like, must be doing something right. <laughs> but not on Gallipoli, he was not. So he's absolutely devastated by this. He said, I'm finished in respect of all I care for, the waging of war, the defeat of the Germans. And this is another thing where you just, you know, some respect is due, I think. His immediate response is that he goes to serve in Belgium, yeah. where he is almost killed by shrapnel. Yeah. 
he's really, you know, he's not running over the top with the Tommies, but he's in real genuine danger. Oh, yeah. And if he'd been there, it, it just came to a natural end because of what was going on. I mean, it wasn't because he tried to get out quickly. Yeah. But if he'd been there during the Somme, he would almost certainly have been killed. So this is that the other side of that kind of like adventurer, you know, sort of flashman come to life part mm -hmm. of him is obviously that can cause the endanger the, the lives of others. But he had no problem endangering his own life. Absolutely. And you can't, I don't yeah. think anyone takes it. He was like an incredibly brave man. Yeah. Lloyd George replaces Asquith and brings back Churchill as Minister of Munitions for the rest of the war. Asquith didn't like him much. There's a famous quote. He will never get to the top in English politics with all his wonderful gifts. To speak with the tongues of men and angels and to spend laborious days and nights in administration is no good if a man does not inspire trust. Mm -hmm. Which, first line, wrong, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> But pretty much right. He says he's, he's an amazingly eloquent. He's incredibly hardworking. That's another thing that basically nobody can deny. Just, mm. this, just phenomenal stamina for just reading the papers, for yes. writing the memos, for doing the work. But, you know, he had no followers. He had mm. no Churchillites. There was nobody. Weirdly, the people he served with in 1916, they were like, oh, I would die for this man. Yeah. And yet nobody in politics Mm -hmm. would fucking sacrifice a thing for him yeah you know yeah. he had like he had basically like one friend well, i mean a little later he sacrifices what's left of his reputation during the abdication crisis and the very few people you have who are around him and work quite low are just like well i can't do this man because you're just gonna i don't know what the hell you're gonna lose your mind over next no. you know and like what why why would this be the thing well there were certain times where he did just seem to lose his mind and one of the things that that drove him mad was lenin and the Bolsheviks. Oh, absolutely. Right. We may have found a, an area of disagreement. Really? But he yeah. absolutely despised them. He wanted British troops to support the white Russians in the Civil War, mm. which is a bold step. I think we're about to have one of these moments where, really? we, where we remind ourselves why you are genuinely more left wing than I am. I'm not. This is not. <laughs> a, think, no, but this you is just not, got it right. But this is not a pro Lenin <laughs> point, but on many things, including, like I said, about the kind of his sort of isolated outbursts of, of, of anti Semitism. Mm hmm. Almost like his his hatred of communists overrode his opposition to anti-Semitism. And so he's just like, well, I don't like those. I don't like Trotsky. I don't like Marx. And we're going to come to this much later with his famous Gestapo speech in mm -hmm. 1945. You know, they, I do think it was a kind of like, it was one of his, one of these obsessions that he had that drove him a bit nuts. Okay, so my, my counter would be, I think he describes communism accurately from the beginning. And I think he then describes it accurately again after the war about the Soviet Union. And when it comes to it, when you're forced to make a choice between, can I work with Stalin when I'm, you know, against Hitler, then very quickly, he's extremely pragmatic. You know right. what I mean? He's I'm like, sure. oh, no, that's obviously what we have to do now. What he has is he cannot control the extravagance of his language. Like, in terms of rhetoric, uh, he has to go to the ultimate place, uh, you know, and he does it over free trade, he does it over Ireland, he does it over India, you know, and he does it here. And the, the only thing that changes is that when you get to World War II, the moment in history reaches the natural level of his rhetoric. <laughs> and all of that extravagance right. of language just works because it's true. But all of that early stuff with, you know, it's the bamboo and the death of all moral. I mean, it's basically just the way he talked about all things. But in that case, I, I think he was calling it better than most people at, at the time who were more circumspect about Russia. Because when you look at what happened under communist rule in Russia, yeah, yeah. it sort of satisfies most of the warnings that he was making. But militarily, that would have been a, that was a terrible idea. 
Yeah, militarily, it's not fantastic. Okay, we'll turn to this is a minor, minor disagreement. <laughs> it's going to be two out of ten on our disagreement scale. I'm Ross Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. So we are out of World War One, which brings us to, I've spoken about Ireland. Again, he's still, you know, he's still a liberal, mm-hmm. supports right votes for, uh, vote for women, nationalising the railways supports the League of Nations, supports restrictions on monopolies, you know, supports home rule. Again, a fairly progressive set of things. And remember, I should just point out because of some of the reading I've been doing recently and that we did in the bonus, you know, podcast as well, is that in this era, progressivism and racism or progressivism and eugenics are in no way contradictory. Mm -hmm. It seems strange now but so to say that he had a lot of progressive policies is not to say that he didn't have views that, you know, that, yeah. that now seem appalling. And I think economically, and in terms of, like you say, sort of criminal justice policy, he's well to the left of mm. the modern Conservative Party. Oh, yeah. Of the current cabinet, of, of most people on the parliamentary benches right now. He's way, way, way to the left of them. Now, I'm slightly worried that we're just being too nice to him. But mm. uh, we, we have to talk about Allegation 5. Yep. Iraq. Yes, which he was meant to use. Uh, he is he is alleged to have wanted to use mustard gas, which is what Wikipedia currently says, against Kurdish rebels who were clashing with British troops in Mesopotamia, as was, uh, in 1919 and 1920. Let me give you the quote. This is him writing, Air power may ultimately lead to a form of control over semi-civilized countries, which will be found very effective and infinitely cheaper. And then he says, I am strongly in favor of using poisoned gas against uncivilized tribes. And that is obviously the kill shot, the line that's brought up again right. and again and again. Churchill wanted to use chemical weapons in Iraq. And this, again, holding up my hand, I 100% believed and just always thought was true. Mm. It's not. I mean, even the mention of mustard gas, is too, I mean, he seems, when you actually read the full document, to be talking primarily about tear gas. Immediately after he says uncivilized tribe, right? Which is yeah. obviously, I mean, one, obviously racist again. Um, sure, sure. And the use of the term poison gas. But I think this is a kind of like historical ambiguity. Because he says, going on, The moral effect should be so good that the loss of life should be reduced to a minimum. It is not necessary to use only the most deadly gases. Gases can be used which cause great inconvenience and spread a lively terror and yet would leave no serious permanent effects on most of those affected. He also specifically references uh, eyes watering. So he says it's sheer affectation to lacerate a man with the poisonous fragment of a bursting shell and to boggle at making his eyes water by lacrimatory gas. So it's very clearly... I mean, it could not be clearer that he is talking about using tear gas, yeah, not mustard gas, 
Also, remember in the context of the absolute horror of mustard gas in the First World War, that is the thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe the greatest moral horror yeah. of the First World War is mustard gas. So the bit where I always had a little bit of a doubt about this story was like, it's a, it's a, it's a taboo to talk about using mustard gas immediately after World War One. Like something about that, didn't really look into it, but something about that kind of didn't smell right when you're actually looking about the kind of the cultural politics of gas and the way mm-hmm. people talked about weapons. Anyway, clearly, I think he meant tear gas, which you can say shouldn't have been used anyway. In any event, no gas was used anyway. And not only that, but actually the RAF, and by the way, one of the fascinating things about doing all this reading is that you think of the RAF as this great heroic thing. In oh, fact, yeah. the, the origin of it is kind of this sort of state terrorism of just pulverizing you oh, know, yeah. villages into oblivion. Is that when he heard the British operation in which airmen were basically terrifying villages into a lake using bombs and then just bombing them in the lake, he protested against it and tried to stop it. So actually, which you see with him constantly, this sudden moral awareness, despite the <laughs> murderous imperialism, you know, again, he's a complicated guy, this guy. The thing is, he, he had lines. Now, they're not lines... He drew the line somewhere different to where I would draw them. <laughs> but he, but he did, he did have objections and just go, well, you shouldn't treat people like that. You yes. should treat them people bad than yeah. me, like in my way. There's a, a massacre, the Amistad massacre in India, and he he's sort of taking on Brigadier General Reginald Dyer, who committed it. And he tells the Commons. This is something somewhat hypocritical, but I think is is revealing about him, because I think he does believe this. This is a massacre of 380 people by troops. We cannot admit this doctrine in any form. Frightfulness is not a remedy known to the British pharmacopoeia, which incidentally is also very elegantly expressed and hypocritical. But I think is a real thing in him of there's this sort of fear of barbarism. And I think he has it later on during the Second World War about the bombing of cities. These sort of moments of turning around and being like, are we the monsters? You know, what are we doing here? Yeah. Now... Getting into the 20s, I think we've made a kind of editorial decision here, actually, to go pretty light on the 20s, because I mean, he was you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer, quite a big deal, played a major role in the in the general strike. But let's also just mention, he is now back in the Conservatives. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. So he, he rejoins the Conservatives in 24. With what Chancellor. might be called, you know, very canny timing, given that the Liberals are at this stage. Yeah, I'm sure it was predominantly about values, but in fact, the Liberals were going into permanent decline. Conservatives were on the rise. Well, he's an amazing... This is a psychological theory that I developed. You know there was that weird scene last year that Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, stepping down, and there's all this talk about Boris Johnson's going to come back. And I thought, this is mad. Obviously not. Like, did he forget why he was removed? Like, what, what the hell? And I wondered whether he was so immersed in the idea that he is Churchillian and one of the major lessons mm. that you would take away from Churchill's life is endless comebacks. Yeah. And nobody bounces back like Churchill. So in, in Dundee in 1922, because he moved around like quite a lot of different constituencies. Oh, sure. No longer old him here. Yeah. So, I actually stopped bothering to even count. Oh, yeah. Lost his scene in Dundee in 1922. He was out of parliament for two years. Uses that time to write his book about the war, The World Crisis, mm. which is a huge success, brings in loads of money. Later on, he lost the equivalent of half a million pounds in the Wall Street crash. <laughs> but within one year, with his writing, including his autobiography, My Early Life, he had earned back the equivalent of a million. <laughs> so it's sort of, he is like uh, Chumbawamba's song, Tub Thumping. Uh, so you may have be the first person yeah. to make that comparison. They knock him down, he gets back up again. Weirdly, I found, as a, as a, as a reader, least interested in this thing, when he's, ch- he's chancellor for five years, includes the general strike when he kind of runs the the pro 
government mm-hmm. newspaper against the strikers disastrously restores the gold standard but of course nobody is you know spraying red paint on a statue of churchill because like, this is for the gold standard you <laughs> bastard <laughs> like With these neo keynesians just going like yeah. like it's a big to be if you're doing a full biography of churchill it's important it's just sort of not relevant to his to his image now although it is worth mentioning that he also uh, reduced the state pension age to 65 and put taxes on luxury goods and he had the lovely quote which it would be nice if more chancellors could possibly say it or even think it i would rather see finance less proud and industry more content and for all of this swapping around of parties and swapping around opinions on things actually he is extremely consistent on his economic position which is a kind of sort of one it's not even one nation it is he calls it tory democracy which is not really a phrase that we have now but it's basically left-wing conservatism yeah, yeah which is why you see he's angry with the socialists because it's almost they are they these angry sort of barbaric people like just stop shouting mm-hmm. you know i will trust me to work out the best contract between capital and labor yes you know? no, no and that's you see that's the clue to thing that's what distinguishes him from a social democrat which is that it's always about the ruling class's magnanimity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, just stop fighting and we will give it to you because we are nice. And he will. <laughs> he will actually do that. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, will, it can never be God, secured through struggle. God if forbid you, try to get it. you should demand it. <laughs> exactly. If you demand it, then, you know, obviously we do have to shoot you in the street. <laughs> but, you know, just, just, just shut up and we will give it to you, you know, out of our own generosity. Now, we get to this point there. I mean, once we've, once we've hit that, we are now in the build-up to the Second World War. Because we're now in the early 30s and you're suddenly getting the rise of Nazism. And this is the point where we start to see like a complete turnaround in the fortunes and the reputation of this man. So that seems like a good moment to finish part one of our Churchill a palooza on the cliffhanger on the cliffhanger I wonder what's, what's going to happen what's going to happen <laughs> who will win the second world war uh, yeah because there's, there's, there's just there's, there's so much more to talk about and that's I suppose the, you know the most famous stuff but I do think what I found and I hope I managed to convey uh, to listeners because what I found from all the various books I was reading and I really was trying to go back to like I think this one's too soft I'm going to read a harsh one mm. this was you know as much material as I could find it's just the complexity of him, the sort of underrated progressivism, which sits hand in hand with, you know, his, not just the, you know, racism, but also, you know, his incredible kind of his egotism and his unreliability and his kind mm. of friendlessness. And it it totally, for me, even before, you don't even have to get to the Second World War, the build-up to the Second World War, to kind of demolish the, the sort of, hero or villain or find that this is an entirely useless way of understanding him and the politics of the time he made me um sort of quite cross with politicians now in that although i do find him overbearing and despicable in many ways he's so interesting like he is mercurial and odd and deeply contradictory and then when you can you know you see now you read a book which i'm 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 impressed by what you said about Boris Johnson's book. I presumed it would have been worse than that. But you see the sort of modern day politician try to compare themselves to him. And you just think, I don't see any evidence of that kind of depth of internal life, you know? Yeah. And that I think is maybe where I have undermined 
my original premise, hmm. <laughs> which was that I was like, okay, say he dies in 1939, you know, his record is not that impressive. And I was like, I don't know, man. You know, we, we, we still have some of these things. We still, he was involved in, you know, launching national insurance. Mm-hmm. He was yeah, involved in, in yeah. certain prison reforms, the state pension age. Mm. You know, if, you, if you're taking like the better bits of the record and you're like, well, these are things that are still with us. So I think he, I think he, he did have a record. And if you want to say, you know, as a, on, the, on the bad side, you know, Gallipoli, a major event went very, very badly, <laughs> badly wrong. But I felt like maybe that I had underrated the substance of him. And obviously he would not be an icon and people arguing about statues. But he would have been maybe somebody that we talk about, like who's who's the great sort of non-prime ministers, like Bev, Beveridge or Rab yeah, Butler Jenkins. or Roy Jenkins. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like so not, he wasn't just some like flibberty gibbet <laughs> knocking about. Wow. Yes. I don't understand what just happened. <laughs> just some kind of like, he wasn't just some like shallow dickhead, you know, <laughs> whose moment only arrived at a moment of enormous, you know, yeah. global yeah. crisis. The career is interesting. The personality is <laughs> deeply interesting and weird. Mm. Even before you get to what we're going to explore in the second part, which is the war. Origin Story only exists thanks to our amazing Patreon subscribers. So thank you so much to Gareth Wood, Simon Shuttleworth, Griff Erg, Michael Bryan and Rob Ives. To find out how you can get a personal shout out on the show, plus loads of benefits and origin story merchandise, click on the link in the show notes. Hold on to your seats. We'll be back next week. So I hope you join us. Thank you so much for listening to this one. We would love it if you could review us on a podcast platform or even support us on Patreon or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, which helps us read all the many, many, many books, including ones by Boris Johnson. (laughs) Go, go, tell your friends. They said Churchill's a racist, but he's a great bloke, really. (laughs) Start a tweet storm and that's how we'll (laughs) succeed. I'll see you next time. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The producer was Liam Tate and the lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, with art direction by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.